From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, April 2nd. I'm Marco Werman. UN envoy Kofi Annan lays down an April 10th deadline for Syria to implement his peace plan. This opposition activist says the peace plan doesn't go far enough. Let's be clear here. The Kofi Annan mission should not be a way to manage the crisis. It should be a way to finish this crisis, which means we have to see the back of Bashar al-Assad and his guys. And later, trouble for an American pro-democracy group working in the United Arab Emirates. Those stories ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Nova, with Hunting the Elements. David Pogue, technology correspondent of The New York Times, guides viewers through the world of weird extreme chemistry. Wednesday, April 4th at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. More than a year into the Syrian uprising and crackdown, and there's still no diplomatic consensus about how to stop the violence. And that's not the only part of the Syrian crisis that's confusing. Today, Special Envoy Kofi Annan said April 10th is the deadline for Syria's government to start implementing his six-point peace plan. The plan calls for a stop to the violence by both sides. Annan said President Bashar al-Assad has agreed to the plan in principle, but in practice today, Assad's military reportedly bombarded parts of the city of Homs again. And over the weekend, the U.S. and other countries attending a Friends of Syria meeting in Turkey pledged financial support for the rebels in Syria as well as communications equipment. Participants stopped short of promising to arm the rebels, though. Obeda Nahas is a spokesperson for the opposition Syrian National Council. He's in Istanbul, where he attended the meeting this weekend. Nahas says he's pleased with the promise to supply the rebels with communications gear. This is good. I mean, the, the communication equipment are important because, as we know, it has been a battle of getting our voice heard by the world. And so far, for a year, the Syrians managed to get video streaming on almost hourly basis, And uh, there is uh, still a lot of need, you know, for communications because the regime keeps infiltrating the communications, which puts people's lives at risk. And this is why we need secure communications, which we are now getting. Uh, So, yes, we are looking forward to receive all the help we can get, although the Syrians are still asking for more. Do you think Washington is blurring the lines between arming and not arming the rebels? I think uh, maybe. And in fact, the Syrian National Council vision on this is very clear. The Free Syrian Army was, first of all, def- uh, formed from defected army personnel. And its its number is not large enough to fight the Syrian army. In fact, we try to retrieve the national army from the regime because we believe it's a national institution. At the same time, the Free Syrian Army role is to protect civilians. And now, with it being united under one leadership and being following the political lead of the SNC, this means this role can be implemented in the right way. Would you prefer that uh, nations outside of Syria just come up and say, 
we're going to support the Free Syrian Army with guns. Whatever enables Syrians to defend themselves, which is a right under the international law, as we all know, the UN supports people defending themselves, and this is what the Syrians want. The Syrian revolution in general is peaceful. This need for protection only became necessary once the regime started butchering civilians. We we all know about the massacres that took place against women, children. The regime did that even when Kofi Annan was in Damascus sitting with the president. There was a massacre in Karmaz Zaytun in Homs. Uh, the massacres have to be stopped. And if the international community couldn't protect civilians, the Syrians found their own way and the Free Syrian Army is doing its duty. And yet, Mr. Nahas, there are reports of increased arms smuggling into Syria. Where are the rebels getting their arms from? Well, there are too too many sources, I think. But uh, to be honest, it might be surprising to many people to know that many of the arms are coming from within Syria itself. Let's not forget that this is a corrupt regime. And there are people within the regime willing to sell arms to people. In some cases, uh, as early as April and March and May last year, there were incidents of the army pulling out of some areas and leaving behind some weapons so civilians can use that because the, the regime was trying to frame Syrians as fighting against it with arms. Now, uh, so far, the Free Syrian Army officers and soldiers can get many weapons from inside Syria, and they are still doing that. Now, you talked about the salaries that you're paying for those uh, free Syrian army fighters. I mean, your opposition has had pledges of $176 million in humanitarian assistance, another $100 million for the salaries for those fighters. It's a lot of money out there. How, practically speaking, does that money get handed out? Well, there's no money yet. I mean, these are all pledges. And so far, the SNC only received a very small amount of of all what you are hearing about in the media. There is need for all the money we can get. Now, the salaries thing is just a decision made a few days ago, and it has not been implemented yet, but this is part of a plan to, uh, to organize. Once you get those pledges, all those millions of dollars, are you concerned that uh, the money is going to be able to be accounted for in the long run? Of course. I mean, there has been already mechanisms for accountancy. There is a special bureau that oversees how the money is spent, and there is a mechanism. And in fact, many states asked to be aware and they wanted to see how this mechanism works before they start uh, paying money. Today, the UN Arab League envoy to Syria, Kofi Annan, asked the UN Security Council for help uh, in implementing an April 10th deadline uh, for Syria to partially implement his peace plan with a full ceasefire by April 12th. Do you have much faith in that plan and UN efforts in general? Let's be clear here. The Kofi Annan mission should not be a way to manage the crisis. It should be a way to finish this crisis, which means we have to see the back of Bashar al-Assad and his guys. What will it take for the Syrian National Council to unseat Bashar al-Assad? There is no country built around one man uh, anywhere in the world. This man has to go. He is even going to be haunted for uh, crimes uh, in front of the International Criminal Court. So basically, uh, the countries that are supporting Bashar al-Assad have to realize that he has to go and there are other people who have blood on their hands who have to go. The rest of the country, even the rest of the regime, can be part of an an all-inclusive national dialogue process, which the SNC has promised, and it will carry out this process after Bashar al-Assad and his aides leave power. I think we can see this happen. It's a matter of pulling the plug 
of support that the regime is getting from outside. Obeda Nahas, a spokesperson for the Syrian National Council, speaking with us from Istanbul. Thank you very much. Thank you. The longer the violence continues in Syria, the louder the calls get outside the country to supply the rebels with weapons. Many in Washington and elsewhere have their doubts about that option, but there's also a movement within Syria that's committed to continuing the uprising using only nonviolent methods. Reporter Asya Bundawi recently met in Turkey with a number of Syrian activists who are considering their best peaceful options. Back in June, in the early days of the Syrian uprising, Ibrahim Kashush, a resident of Hama, composed what came to be known as the Anthem of the Syrian Revolution. The catchy song, Kaman Bashar Leave, spread across Syria and spawned numerous imitations and remixes. Kashush was reportedly killed by security forces in July, his throat slit and body dumped in a river. But if his killing was intended to scare anyone off, it had the opposite effect. Activists in Damascus stuffed cassette players and speakers with Kashush's song in black bags and dispersed them in garbage cans around the city. Soon, the anthem of the revolution was blaring from street corners across Damascus. And around the country, other activists have been just as creative. From pouring red dye in fountains to staging massive sit-ins to handing out dates and roses to soldiers, they say nonviolent resistance saves more lives and in the end is a more powerful tactic. Khalaf Ali al-Khalaf is a Syrian activist from Aleppo. Peaceful resistance is a must. If we use weapons, we won't be able to succeed since we don't have enough weapons or soldiers. Giving people arms will only increase death and pain. The opposition must convince those requesting arms that there is a different method of resistance. We are facing an unusual regime, so we have to use unusual methods. I met Al-Khalaf in Istanbul, along with a number of activists from around Syria who are working on the nonviolent resistance movement there. Anmar is another activist. She's from Damascus, but currently lives in Paris, and asks that we not use her last name for her protection. Anmar says more than just saving lives, nonviolent resistance is preserving the spirit of the Syrian revolution. So if we are going to be violent, we're going to be uh, as cruel as this regime. How to act against this violence is to show that this violence is ridiculous and it's not fair. The hope is that nonviolent protest will win over what the opposition believes to be the silent majority of Syrians. Those in Damascus, Aleppo and other big cities who agree with the cause but disagree with the current tactics and who aren't willing to risk their lives. Anmar says there are small acts of disobedience that anyone can do. Once people put lights on the windows, there were there was call, like calls on Facebook saying that at this day we're going to light candles for um, the revolution. And people started to do it. We're trying all the time to reach those people like, please, what we want is to, to live together and to be uh, one part and to build our country. Jawad al-Khatib is an activist from the town of Kamishli and a spokesman for the United Union of Free Syrian Students. Al-Khatib says their goal is to stop business as usual in every university in the country. And so far, they've succeeded in shutting down several and are hoping that the University of Damascus will be next. The revolution in Aleppo was actually ignited at the university first, then spread to the city. 
We're working on other cities where the barrier fear still hasn't been broken to start the demonstrations from the universities. The Syrian people are dying. The least we can do is stop going to class to say the university will stop until the regime falls. More than just bringing down the regime of Bashar al-Assad, Syria's nonviolent activists believe that the goal of the revolution is to bring a new spirit of democracy and freedom to the country, and that the tactics used during the revolution are just as important as the goal. But whether these activists can convince those calling for a military solution that the regime can be toppled through nonviolent means alone is another question entirely. I know that uh, people are scared for their lives, and I know that this is very difficult. But at the same time, I, I can say this now, I'm not violent. The regime is violent, so I can't be in his shoes. I, I don't want to be like him. So I have to create, we have to be more creative to, to work it out. It might take a long time, but a long time with saving lives, it's better for me. For The World, I'm Asya Bundawi in Istanbul. Democracy may be walking a tightrope in the Mideast post-Arab Spring, but in Mali and West Africa, the path seems, well, totally uncertain. A few years ago, Mali had emerged as one of the most democratic countries in all of Africa. As poor as it is, Mali was a model for peaceful transitions of power via the, via the ballot box. That changed two weeks ago when a military coup unseated the president, Amadou Toumani Touré. The new military leader said President Touré hadn't done enough to control rebels of the Tuareg ethnic group. Those rebels were launching attacks in the north of Mali in an attempt to create their own autonomous homeland the rebels want to call Azawad. Today, those rebels now control most of the north of Mali, including the remote and ancient cities of Gao and Tombouctou. The rebels say they have no intention of moving on to the capital, Bamako. Here's rebel leader Musa Ag Asarid. No, 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 no. It's not our problem. Our problem is Azawad. Only Azawad. Only Azawad. Kidal, Gao, Tombouctou. No, no Bamako. Bamako is the capital of Mali. Bamako is also where the young Malian soldiers who staged the coup two weeks ago reside. With the situation worse than before the coup, and most of the country out of their control, those soldiers clearly haven't done better than the man they ousted. And today, the coup leaders were slapped with harsh financial sanctions that could cause landlocked Mali to run out of gasoline. You're listening to The World from PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Just a few weeks ago, we were reporting on the legal troubles facing American NGOs working in Egypt. They were facing accusations that they'd broken local laws by supporting pro-democracy efforts in the country. Well, now one of those groups, the National Democratic Institute, or NDI, has had its offices shut down in the United Arab Emirates. The UAE hasn't had an Egyptian-style Arab Spring Revolution, but authorities there have cracked down on dissent. Former Congressman Sam Gadenson is a board member of the National Democratic Institute. He's in Connecticut. Now, for the Gulf region, Sam, the Emirates are normally regarded as pretty liberal. Did this come completely out of the blue for you? Well, I think it was a surprise. But I, I think, you know, the critical issue here is in, in a number of these countries where they've had non-democratic governments, where there's been significant repression of various groups, uh, it's always easy to try to blame some outside force. 
you know, when you look at history, though, there's always a desire by people to find a free and democratic way uh, to interact. I mean, the British couldn't have blamed uh, NDI when the Americans decided it was time to separate. Uh, the French Revolution wasn't started by NDI. Uh, and what happens is, I think it's just a very easy target. Obviously, if you run a country that's not democratic, that's trying to suppress a portion of your population or the entire population, then NDI is an organization you wouldn't want in your country. When Hillary Rodham Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton, was asked about the closing of the NDI in the United Arab Emirates, uh, she said it was regrettable, but she also said that the administration's overarching interest was to cooperate with countries in the region, particularly in the areas of security and anti-terrorism. What do you read into that? Well, obviously, the administration has a number of things that it has to deal with. And one of the critical issues at the moment is to find a way for the tragedy uh, in Syria to end. So uh, at the moment, the administration is obviously focusing uh, on trying to find a way to work with uh, Arab governments in the region uh, to put an end to the mass slaughter of Syrian citizens. This administration, and particularly Secretary Clinton, has shown a tremendous commitment to organizations like ours that work for a democratic development. You don't think there's an implication in there that if, you know, Gulf nations uh, do their job well in security and anti-terrorism, then the U.S. could, you know, let these episodes in which NGOs like the NDI and others are targeted, uh, the U.S. will sweep those under the rug? I don't think so. I think that what you have here is at the moment they're focusing on a particular humanitarian crisis where people are being slaughtered by the, the, the regime in Syria And obviously, in in that instance, you know, that's her focus. But clearly, both the president and uh, Secretary Clinton have been tremendous supporters of the National Democratic Institute and the NED. Still, I imagine this uh, kind of tightening of freedoms in the UAE uh, probably worry you. We're not going to get democratic governments around the world uh, instantaneously. With the fall of the Soviet Union, I think a lot of people thought that you know, tomorrow there'd be democratic governments and everything be better. One, you need free and democratic elections. You need to give people better uh, access to their government and a better standard of living. People around the world are demanding freedom. It's not some outside organization, ours or anybody else's, uh, that, you know, kind of gives them this 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 idea. This is an an idea that springs from people and from the fact that world communication makes it impossible now for non-democratic governments to keep their people uh, unaware of what freedom is really like. Former Congressman Sam Gadenson, a board member of the National Democratic Institute, whose offices in the United Arab Emirates have been closed by the government there. He's been speaking to us from Connecticut. Sam, thanks very much. Thank you. Italian soccer legend Giorgio Canalia died in Florida over the weekend from complications after a heart attack. He was 65. Canalia was the top goal scorer for the fabled New York Cosmos in the 1970s and 80s. Before that, he was a star with the Italian team, Lazio. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. This is Giorgio Canalia's novelty song, Football Crazy. I'm better than the rest. That kind of sums up his career in soccer. Canalia had an ego, a big ego. But he had something else, the talent to back it up. Cosmos now applying some pressure. Ricky Davis deflected. Now coming in front of the goal. It's a shot and a goal! Canalia! Canalia joined the New York Cosmos in 1976. Unlike some of the team's other stars, including the Brazilian Pele, 
Canalia was at the peak of his career when he arrived. Two seasons earlier, he'd been the top scorer in the Italian league. He played for one of Rome's teams, Lazio. And he made an impression on a then nine-year-old living in Italy, William Troop. He was this huge character on the field, like literally, physically, this huge character. He was, uh, I think, just over six feet tall, like six foot one, at a time when soccer players just weren't that tall. Now, full disclosure, William Troop's one of my editors at The World. But more than that, he's a Lazio superfan. And Canalia, this huge guy who towered over his teammates and demanded that they pass him the ball, he had the power to win games for William's team. He only had eyes for the ball and the goal and how he was going to get it in there. And you really just could feel it as you were watching that this man was obsessed with scoring and winning. When Canalia brought those skills to New York, soccer fans here went crazy for him too. In 1978, a newspaper article compared him to Reggie Jackson, the Yankees' clutch hitter. The enigmatic Kinalia is the home run threat, read the article. A great goal! Kinalia! Oh, a tremendous goal by Giorgio. Remember, at the Cosmos, Kinalia was playing alongside some of the greatest names in soccer. Germany's Franz Beckenbauer, the Brazilian defender Carlos Alberto, and of course, Alberto's compatriot, Pelé. Still, Canalia's self-belief knew no bounds, as the soccer writer David Hershey recalled in a documentary about the Cosmos called Once in a Lifetime. There was a memorable episode in the Cosmos locker room when Canalia said that he was disgusted that Pelé wasn't giving him the service that he needed to score goals. Pelé, you can imagine, is not used to teammates criticizing him, fired right back and said, you shoot from no angle. And Canalia jumped off his stool and shouted, I am Canalia. If I shoot from some place, it's because Canalia can score from that place. And Pelé was near tears, shook his head and walked out of the locker room. Giorgio Canalia left his mark on soccer then, perhaps as the prototypical petulant star, but also as an out-and-out goalscorer. After his playing days ended, Canalia built a new career as a broadcaster. And in this clip, on a show called Sports Snack on the Italian-American network, he made this argument to his co-host, Charlie Stellatano. Win, and no one will mind too much how you behave. So if you score a goal, you can do what the hell you want to do. You can do whatever you want. If you score a touchdown, you can do what you want to do. That's exactly right. All right, my friend. Thank you, Georgia, once again telling us just worry about yourself and no one else. Georgia, that's not I, right. Thank you for joining but that's us not right. in another edition of Sports No, 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 don't take us off. It's not right. Yes, I'm the best. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. I'm the best in all the world. I'm the strongest of them all. By the way, William Troop has a blog post on how he became football crazy thanks to Giorgio Canalia. It's at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a former U.S. diplomat who worked in Myanmar or Burma celebrates yesterday's historic election there. People are now thinking about their country as a nation. They're thinking about the future of their country. They didn't, they didn't have a future to think about before. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic. Searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. 
application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. A day after breakthrough elections in Myanmar, also known as Burma, there's talk of lifting some international sanctions long imposed on the country and its rulers. Opposition icon Aung San Suu Kyi, whose National League for Democracy won 40 of the 45 parliamentary seats contested in the vote, hasn't addressed the sanctions issue. But her tone today was certainly optimistic. We hope that this will be the beginning of a new era where there will be more emphasis on the role of the people in the everyday politics of our country. A new era? Well, the European Commission said today Europe could begin lifting sanctions within weeks. Washington is being more cautious. Here's a reaction from Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The United States congratulates the people who participated. We are committed to supporting these reform efforts. Going forward, it will be critical for authorities to continue working toward an electoral system that meets international standards, that includes transparency, and expeditiously addresses concerns about intimidation and irregularities. Secretary Hillary Clinton speaking yesterday. Priscilla Clapp would like to see progress toward lifting sanctions against Burma. Clapp was the chief of the U.S. mission in Burma from 1999 to 2002. She's now retired from the diplomatic service and joins us from Washington. Uh, First, Priscilla Clapp, you've been a frequent visitor to Burma since your tour of duty as chief of the U.S. mission there. How has the country changed? It's the people that have changed more than anything. The people are really in many ways different because they've been released from these shackles that have been kept on them for so many years. They're able to talk now. They're able to participate in political activity, which was a reason to be sent to jail just a year ago. That's why there are political prisoners left there. And I think that eventually they will let the rest of them out. At any rate, people are now thinking about their country as a nation. They're thinking about the future of their country. They didn't They didn't have a future to think about before. I'm wondering if you're in touch with any people in the democracy movement in Burma and just, you know, how encouraged they are by what's going on. Oh, absolutely. I'm in touch with them. It's not just the democracy movement. It's it's even government. Everybody's everybody's encouraged. I think the fact that the NLD won all four seats uh, in uh, Naypyidaw, the government capital, means the government's on their side too because the only people who vote in Naypyidaw are government people and military. So that says something about where their support is coming from. Yes, I maintain contact with lots and lots of people there. In fact, I was there in January. I met with Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, We're old friends. And I met with many, many other people in the NLD and in the opposition. Have you uh, spoken with anybody in the last 24 hours and gotten a a new read on, on the optimism there? Well, I'm just hearing that people are ecstatic that the elections turned out to be free because they never knew until the last minute. It's clear that from the vote, in spite of all of the obstacles that were put in the way, and they weren't serious obstacles, obviously, but but there were lots of little niggling obstacles that made it difficult for people to vote for the NLD. And in spite of all of this, the vote seems to have come out overwhelmingly for the NLD. And Priscilla Clapp, given what more needs to be done in Burma before kind of pure democracy is reached, how fast do you think the United States should proceed with easing sanctions? This is going to be a long, difficult process, so I think we need to get started right now. People have been thinking about it. 
and we were waiting to see the results of these elections and how the elections were conducted. And Aung San Suu Kyi herself suggested that this would be the test of when to start easing sanctions. Retired diplomat Priscilla Clapp speaking with us from Washington. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. While Burma is moving toward greater openness, Chinese Internet users are getting a taste of how it feels to move in the opposite direction. Over the weekend, the government, in an effort to clamp down on political debate, detained at least six netizens. It shut down 16 websites and temporarily shut off the comments section on Weibo, China's version of Twitter. It all made normally apolitical Chinese both indignant and curious. The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing. Many young Chinese couldn't believe it Saturday morning when they signed on to their Weibo accounts and saw a notice that said, Recently, comments left by microbloggers have started to contain much illegal and detrimental information, including rumors. To clean up these rumors, it said, the function that allows comments on Weibo posts would be suspended for three days. Amazing. This is a 21-year-old university student. His girlfriend chimes in. It's really inconvenient, she says. The flow of information on the Internet is supposed to be free. But in China, there's so much they don't want the public to know. Neither of these two want their names known because they know it's a politically sensitive time. How do they know with all the attempts at censorship? Twitter or Facebook. He says he uses a proxy server to get around the censors. And what a couple of weeks it's been to read uncensored reports. Rumors of a coup attempt, apparently unfounded. Reports of the ousting of Chongqing Governor Bo Xilai just months before he'd hoped to step into one of China's top nine slots. True. Suspicions about the sudden mysterious death last November of a British consultant with close ties to Bo Xilai, strong enough that the British government has asked Chinese authorities to reopen the case. Not the image China's Communist Party wants to project in a year of leadership transition. Gao Jing is editor-in-chief of the website The Ministry of Tofu, which closely follows the Chinese Internet. They wanted to project an image of harmonious society, and it's unharmonious. So I understand why they wanted to put a lid on the discussion, but it's not a wise move. She says... Many people who use Weibo are apolitical and weren't following the unfolding outsized drama anyway until the government disabled their ability to comment about Weibo posts. To me, it's like a police raid upon the whole community, which is partying and having fun just in search for a criminal who did a petty crime. So it's a buzzkill. One of the affronted is Wang Ron, the CEO of the group China eCapital, He posted a comment saying, I finally come to realize that our limited freedom of speech is as fragile as the wings of a cicada. I'm so afraid that we may wake up one morning only to find there is no Internet in China. Chinese social media entrepreneur Isaac Mao says anxieties like that may not be all bad because it has prompted people to find other ways of getting and sharing information online just in case. China's state-run media have made it clear over the past few days how the government would like Weibo users to react, kind of like this hotel worker named Wu, who says the government did the right thing. Because some comments are not very good and strange. Maybe it's not, not rare, just make something like scandals. A People's Daily editorial over the weekend talked about the need in turbulent times to silence what it called noise. It said... 
Only when we are not afraid of the difficulties, not disturbed by discordant voices, not confused by rumors, can we ensure our thoughts and wisdom are unified to work on the task at hand. Isaac Mao reads the crackdown this way. I think it's the fear from the authority uh, much more than ever before. But much more than ever before, a connected online community is pushing back with jokes, cartoons, and satire. Mixed in is the occasional sharp truth, like what property magnate Zhang Xin wrote to her 3 million Weibo followers. Is stopping comments on Weibo really the best way to stop rumors? No, but transparency and openness will. The more speech is discouraged, the more rumors there will be. In this year of leadership transition, bet on it. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Here in the U.S., we often hear that Latinos will play a key role in November's presidential election. But Latinos are not the fastest-growing minority group in the U.S. Asian Americans are, and nowhere have their numbers swelled more quickly than in Nevada. Much of that growth was fueled by Filipino immigrants. Some 124,000 Filipinos now call Nevada home. And Filipino community leaders there say it's time for them to become the state's newest political voice. But as the world's Jason Margolis tells us, first they have to decide what that voice should say. Finding leaders among Filipino Americans in Las Vegas isn't so easy. They're not very well organized. But there is Rosita Lee. I moved here in 1979 to Las Vegas when I got married. Lee is an old-timer in the Vegas Filipino community. She's a tiny, well-dressed woman who wears big, rose-tinted glasses. She wasn't exactly what I had envisioned as Vegas's most powerful Filipino. I met Lee along with several other Filipinos for coffee. We talked about how they can turn their swelling ranks into political power. Lee says right now, politicians ignore them, but they have no one to blame but themselves. They're all bickering about who's in charge. There is so much division within our community. Uh, You form an organization and you say, well, we can't have you because you're known as this. Well, we can't have you because you're known as... That's bull BS, absolutely, because that is not what is going to bring the people together. You have to recognize your leaders and use those leaders to bring you forward. I, I'm, I'm sorry to be so vocal about this because we have been trying for years to get our Filipinos together. Oh, I'm not running for office. <laughs> Most Filipinos in Vegas were lured here in recent years by cheap homes and good jobs. Priscilla Santayana was a nurse living in California in 1997. Then she and her husband visited Vegas, and he decided to apply for a job with a collection agency. He called up the company and says, do you need my resume? No, we need you in person today. (laughs) For most Filipino immigrants, the move to Vegas was an easy economic transition. Nevada also wasn't their first stop, so they weren't entirely new to American culture. Emily Higby was born in the Philippines, then spent much of her life in California before relocating to Vegas two and a half years ago. You know, we're all transients here, right? And there's still... A learning curve Mm -hmm. to know where I stand politically, where are my issues, (laughs) where is my loyalty, is it, you know, to my party or whatever. Maybe that's one of the reasons. 
Despite their swelling numbers in Nevada, virtually no Filipinos are running for state or local offices. Priscilla Santayana says there are deeper reasons Filipinos aren't politically active. We cannot erase our traditions, believe it or not. Politics in the Philippines is perceived as dirty. So that's why it's very hard to unwind the perceptions about politics. But that's no excuse for not being politically engaged here in Las Vegas, says Amy Belmonte. We're not educated enough, I think, on the issues and then the political um, values of Republican and Democrats and whatever it may be. The process of becoming politically active just takes time, says Daniel Ichonise with the Asian Pacific American Legal Center in Los Angeles. A lot of it has to do with the cultural context. You know, many are coming from countries in which political participation was not only sort of not seen as as important, but actively discouraged. So, you know, for a lot of these folks, culturally, there's some risk involved. Um, But I think what we see is as folks become uh, more acculturated to life in the United States, they begin to realize that political participation um, is part of that go back in Nevada politics, you know, 12, 13 years ago, you could say the same thing about Latinos. David Damore is a political scientist at UNLV. Damore says Latinos became more politically active when they had to. When states began passing laws cracking down on undocumented immigrants, Latinos felt vilified. It began in 1994 when California voters approved a referendum preventing illegal immigrants from accessing health care or public education. DeMora says that galvanized Latinos in California and Western states into political action. And so far for these other minority groups, it hasn't really happened yet. I mean, you hate to see that they have to be sort of targeted by legislation or by by, by politicians to do that, and that just hasn't happened yet. There was one thing that has united Nevada's Filipinos— Manny Pacquiao, the world boxing champion from the Philippines. Two years ago, Democratic Senator Harry Reid was in a tight re-election race. Then Pacquiao, who is far and away the most popular Filipino on the planet, began campaigning for Reid. Here's Filipino Robert Henry, part of the coffee crew. And I do think that that swung some votes. Oh, yes. So it's when we talk good. about what is it that can unify us... Either. It'll be a Manny Pacquiao. Okay, historically, it's something like that. Yes. And it's not the education and all no. of that, which I agree is very important. important. Yes. Because I, we want to have an educated I, electoral. Right. Of right? In other words, That's we want to be politically educated. But yes. will it ever happen? And will people vote as a block based on that? No. Hard to say. No. Hard to say. Pacquiao, who is also a representative in the Philippine Congress, met with President Obama last year. Pacquiao called Obama his inspiration and his idol. This may not deliver Nevada's Filipinos as a solid voting bloc to President Obama, but in absence of much else unifying Filipino Americans in Nevada, it certainly won't hurt. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. You can find more of Jason's ongoing coverage of the 2012 elections from immigration reform to trade issues to foreign relations and more. That's all at theworld.org. For today's GeoQuiz, picture a crackling fire. Long ago, our human ancestors lived in caves. There's one cave in particular that we want your help locating. It's called Wunderwerk Cave, and archaeologists have found in it evidence of how and when early humans used fire. Scientists say it looks like our ancestors may have cooked food in the cave. 
long before matches or Weber grills came along. We'll hear more about the discovery in a minute. But first, we want you to tell us the name of the province where the cave is located. It's in South Africa, and it's the largest and most sparsely populated province in the country. It's got a long Atlantic coastline, and the cave we're talking about is nestled in the Kuraman Hills. We'll look at what scientists found in the cave and reveal the answer in just about a minute. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Well, a full minute went by, so it's time to reveal that South Africa's Northern Cape Province is the answer to our geo-quiz. That's where archaeologists have made a discovery about the early use of fire. It's well known that our ancestors used fire to ward off predators, provide warmth, and cook food. But exactly when they started doing this is a matter of debate. A new study by an international team of scientists may push back the dawn of fire by hundreds of thousands of years. And that finding supports a provocative theory about the role cooking may have played in human evolution. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has a story. The theory about cooking and human evolution was proposed by Richard Wrangham. He's an anthropologist at Harvard University and author of the 2009 book Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Wrangham says fire and cooked food shaped not just human culture, but human bodies. Take, for example, the size of the human gut. Our intestines are simply about uh, two-thirds or less of the size that they would be in a great ape. He says we evolved smaller guts than other apes because we digest cooked food, which takes less work than digesting raw food. We also have smaller teeth than our primate cousins. Because small teeth are associated with soft food and cooking softens food. Rangam believes cooking also gave us the calories to evolve bigger brains. He contends these changes occurred well before modern humans or homo sapiens came into the picture. He argues an early human ancestor, Homo erectus, was already using fire to cook food. The species first evolved nearly two million years ago, but strong archaeological evidence of the use of fire went back only 400,000 years, until now. The new study published today in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences suggests that fire may indeed have been used by our ancestor Homo erectus. The evidence comes from million-year-old remains in Wunderwerk Cave in South Africa. Study author Francesco Berna of Boston University holds up small plastic bags containing fragments of animal bones found in the cave. Here you have the bones, one million years old bones that are gray because of due to the heat. The heat of a fire, that is. Berna confirmed that the bones were burned by using a technique called infrared spectroscopy. Because with infrared spectroscopy, the transformation of bone mineral that occurs when it's heated above generally 400, 500 degrees shows up very well and unequivocally. Berna also found evidence of heating in the sediments in that part of the cave. Berna's colleague Paul Goldberg, also at Boston University, further scrutinized the sediments in the cave using a special microscope. Goldberg sticks a slide under the microscope and shows me what they found. What you'll see is white patches of stuff, which are the pieces of ashes. He doesn't believe that the ashes came from a wildfire because they were too deep inside the cave. The ashes and bones were also associated with stone tools. 
and these were all found through several vertical layers, suggesting repeated fires. Now, the results don't prove that our ancestors were cooking their food a million years ago. After all, they could have dumped the bones in the fire after eating raw meat. But Harvard University's Richard Rangham says the study does offer the first conclusive evidence that human ancestors were controlling fire back then. For me, that is very significant because once you control fire, I think that it would be only a very short time before cooking became a regular practice. He says the study also shows the value of this kind of microscopic analysis to find evidence of ancient fires. He hopes scientists will use the technique at other sites where early humans were known to live. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. And finally, music from other parts of Africa closes our show today. We're focusing on a power trio that hails from Mali and Zimbabwe. They got together for a short-lived tour that is now forever documented on a CD called Acoustic Africa in Concert. Our guest DJ in Zambia brings us this review. Hi, my name is Vanessa Piri, and I'm a part-time music presenter on Joy FM Radio in Lusaka, Zambia. Today I want to share with you probably the number one collaboration that has ever come out of Africa. It combines music and musicians from countries as far apart culturally and historically and even geographically as Mali and Zimbabwe. Oliver Mtukudzi from Zimbabwe with Habib Koite, a guitarist from Mali, and also Afel Bukum, the guitarist and vocalist who was made famous when he played with Ali Fakature. Here's a taste of what this album is like from a live concert recorded in October of 2010 in Europe. <laughs> song from Zimbabwe, Tozeza Baba. The song actually is about a husband who comes home drunk every night and beats up the wife and the children are saying, look, we can't stand this anymore. We resent our father for what he does to our mother. The next track, Fimani, is a song written and sung by Habib Koite, who tunes his Western acoustic guitar and makes it play like he would play a chora. The song is called Fimani and it features uh, vocals in the Bambara language of Mali and also a little addition by Oliver Mchukuzi in Chishona from Zimbabwe. <laughs> Mbira from Zimbabwe, along with Njoko from Mali, along with Oliver Mtukudzi from Zimbabwe. The whole entire spirit of Africanism together. This final track is called Mali Zim, which is Mali and Zimbabwe. It says basically we from Mali and Zimbabwe have come together 
before you to play music for you. My name is Manasse Perry. Goodbye till the next time. The album is called Acoustic Africa in Concert with musicians Habib Koite, Afel Bokum, and Oliver Mutakudzi, a veritable pan-African supergroup. You can learn more about the trio's concert at theworld.org. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, including the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.